If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Welcome to 2021. We made it everyone, we're here. 2020 is over and a brighter day is dawning. A new year means a new season on the podcast and I'd like to welcome you to season four of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Thanks for joining me. The Speech Uncensored podcast is your destination for nourishing your mind and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. This week's guest is Brittany Ferry, an occupational therapist and owner of Simplicity of Health. Brittany is a previous guest and joins me again to talk about sensory strategies for learning and motivation. While this topic is geared towards pediatrics, we also provide strategies for sensory considerations when working with adults post-stroke and adults with dementia. My name is Leanne Porter, your host, and I'm delighted Brittany could join me again. And without further ado, let's get into our topic. I'm really excited that I'm joined by Brittany, who was a guest on the podcast last year, and I learned so much. And one of the things that I love talking with Brittany on is that she brings that OT perspective in, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Brittany's going to guide us through the basics of each sensory system and then show us how we can use this information to improve our patient's motivation, enhance learning, and increase skill carryover outside of therapy. So welcome back, Brittany. How are you? Thanks so much. It's great to be here again. I'm good. Yay, Had a nice restful here. holiday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to be starting off 2021 with you. This is great. Yeah. Right. So our plan for tonight was to be able to have some video with our chat, but technology is working against us. However, you do have some slides that you're able to share. Yep. Pull those up right now. Okay. While you're getting those up, I want to learn a little bit more about you, Brittany. So once you're kind of like settled and you've got everything going, tell me more about you. Although actually I've got some info here that I'm going to share. So as I mentioned before, Brittany is an occupational therapist and the owner of Simplicity of Health, and she has clinical and leadership experience in behavioral health, pediatrics, and telehealth. Her current services focus on health writing, program development, and clinical consulting. And Brittany has written four books and lectured at over 20 um, occupational therapy programs across the nation. So I think that's really cool, Brittany. Like, I love all those things that you do. Thank you. Um, yeah, you summed it up pretty well. Um, for the past couple of years, um, I've been really focusing all my efforts on my business, um, but also kind of jumped into teletherapy or was grateful enough to jump into teletherapy before a lot of therapists were kind of forced into it due to COVID. So I, I think that's, I've been really fortunate to develop my skill set in that practice area. Excellent. Yeah, that's, 
I'm a, a little bit jealous. Now I haven't had to do any telehealth for my role, but I feel like it really gave people a leg up who had been practicing in that before, like you mentioned, like kind of being forced into it because of the pandemic. Like it's a, it's a real right. uphill battle when, you know, it's not by choice, but by necessity. So yeah, definitely. I, I do feel for therapists who are kind of struggling to get their footing, but I, I do think it's a great innovation that, you know, is is going to hopefully expand only, only expand from here on out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So back in the early days of my practice, I worked in with pediatrics in an outpatient setting. And I learned so much that I wasn't exposed to in my graduate program about the impact of sensory integration and how really important it is with working with pediatrics. But also what I'd like to do is then kind of uh, see how this also relates to working with adults because we often can overlook that if it's not top of our mind. So where are we going to start today, Brittany? Yeah, so we're going to we're going to focus in on a lot of these sensory strategies for kids, but you know, the information is applicable to all populations. So as you mentioned, we'll definitely address kind of how these can be addressed in an adult and older adult population. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. All right. So as we mentioned, um, the course should talk about Uh, what sensory integration is, what the main senses are, how these have an impact on the therapy process, either for good or bad, and also going over some simple strategies that you could use to enhance learning and motivation during really sessions of any kind. So starting off with from, you know, the real basics, sensory integration, we have to break that down and really learn what it is. Um, Sometimes it's called sensory processing, and it really talks about the brain, the brain's ability to take information from the outside world organize it and appropriately respond to it. So while there's several senses that we should all be aware of, there's really five main ones that that really have a big impact on the therapy process. The sense of smell, which is olfactory input, uh, sense of sight, which is vision, taste, which is your gustatory system, sound, which is auditory, and touch, which is tactile. Within each of these senses, it's really important to note that children can have some of the following reactions. It doesn't necessarily mean that kids will have these reactions to every type of sensory input, and it doesn't even mean that they'll always have this response to certain sensory input. Some kids really can fluctuate based on a lot of factors. If they're more fatigued, if they're more stressed, if they're hungry, Um, or even kind of external factors like being in an unfamiliar setting that can all impact how kids respond. And, you know, some of those responses can really make it seem like they're manifesting in a certain way. So the first one is under-responsive. Kids who are under-responsive are also called hyporeactive or low registration. Um, So a good way to think of this is low registration isn't the same as low energy, but kids who are under-responsive do often present with low energy just think of the kid who who really takes a lot to get him going. Maybe he's just slow to move. Um, maybe he just kind of seems disengaged. And that's a good way to describe under-responsive. Over-responsive, which is also called hyper-reactive, sensitive, or defensive. A lot of times over-responsive is kind of referred to in reference to the tactile system. Um, tactile defensiveness is, is a pretty common term. Um, so this is a child who who really really feels everything around them. So any kind of sensation is not going to be to, to be able to be taken in and, and processed very easily. It's something that they're very sensitive to. It takes either a lot of time or a lot of energy for them to kind of work through work through that. 
So for those over-responsive folks, it could be something like the tag on their shirt that's rubbing the back of their neck might Absolutely. be too much sensory input. And then that combined with maybe like bright lights or maybe like noise, like it's too much. And so then they have like behaviors because of that. Is, is that kind of like what happens? Right, definitely. Um, yeah, clothing sensitivities are a very big one. Like we were mentioning the tactile defensiveness. Clothing causes a lot of issues for kids, you know, various fabrics, either it's too tight or too loose or, you know, a lot of those can definitely cause a child to be um, hyperreactive. Another one that can actually look similar to a child who's over-responsive is sensory seeking or sensory craving. Um, those are kids who really just look like they're getting all they can get out of life, you know, they're constantly in motion, you know, really crashing, jumping, whatever it may be. They're really seeking any kind of sensory input from wherever they can get it. And then we have poor discrimination or perception. Um, so these are kids who really might have low body awareness, kind of difficulty understanding their place in the environment. We'll get into that one. We'll get into all of them in a little bit more detail, but that one's a little easier to understand when you have the specific manifestations in front of you. And then dyspraxia is poor movement skills. So kids with poor coordination takes them a long time to learn different things, especially motor plans. So those are the, the main types of responses. And like I mentioned, we'll get into more specific examples of how each are manifesting in children and really people of any age. Another question for you, Brittany, as you were kind of like going through this and, and learning this in your program, did people pull like a typical like self diagnose like were you like oh my gosh that happened to me or I did that or like oh I'm a sensory craver like does that happen oh yeah definitely I found out that I'm I would definitely fall on the um, under responsive side of things <laughs> so yeah it was definitely interesting going through everything and and really seeing seeing things in a different lens that's what it comes down to you know if, if a child has a few sensitivities here and there it it, it might not really catch somebody's eye, especially if it's not a huge problem, but to an OT or another trained professional who kind of has that lens on it, it definitely can give them a fuller picture as to how to address things in treatment. Mm -hmm. I had another question. It was, are there like mixed responses? Like, could a child be, for example, like over-responsive to like food textures, like, like eating, and then like under-responsive to tactile, like, like feeling things with their body or proprioception type stuff. Like, is that possible or do, or do people kind of really fall within a, a singular group? No. Um, yeah. Mixtures of those are definitely uh, possible and very common. A lot of times if kids have issues in one of these sensory areas, there's going to be some sort of issue, either, you know, over-responsive, under-responsive or whatnot in other areas. And um, it's important to note that, you know, not just issues in one of these areas, don't necessarily warrant an official diagnosis like sensory processing disorder. Um, but if kids have like big issues across all across the board, no matter what their responses are, but if they have sensory processing issues across most of the five senses, that's usually what warrants a diagnosis and um, some formal treatment. Mm. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, the first one we'll get into is over-responsive kiddos. So this will definitely manifest in, in a pretty obvious way. A lot of the time, it's it's something that's hard to ignore because uh, these kids usually have problems with a lot of things around them that we might not think of as issues. So these kids really won't like trying new flavors of foods, especially 
things that are soft, lumpy, or have mixed textures. So a lot of times this might be mashed potatoes or applesauce, something that we might think kids would like, but some, some kids just have a hard time tolerating that texture. Similarly with smell, dislike strong fragrances such as perfumes, candles, or lotions. These kids also startle easily from loud, sudden, or high-pitched noises, usually vacuum cleaners, fire alarms, school bells. A lot of these noises, unfortunately, are kind of happen at school, which can make the school environment, unfortunately, pretty overwhelming for these kiddos. They also prefer to wear sunglasses, hats, and articles of clothing that shield their eyes. This is often because their eyes are just too sensitive to, you know, either light or really anything in their environment that's too bright. So similarly, they'll, they might squint a lot. They might rub their eyes, especially in response to bright colors, vivid patterns, sunlight, or really bright lights, you know, even in, inside. And these kids will also often dislike getting their hair brushed or their nails or hair cut. A lot of times, you know, just maybe the feeling of somebody running their hands through their hair might be too much, or um, the pressure exerted when their hair is getting brushed could be difficult for them. They'd also get distracted by background noises such as fridges, fans, or lawnmowers. Um, so something that we might not even think of, you know, just the, the slight humming of a fridge uh, could really be distracting and, and very upsetting for them at times. They also dislike any sort of mess. Um, so some kids might like to get, you know, into dirt or sand or things like that. Um, these kids really won't like anything on their hands or, or body. Um, they usually get pretty insistent on washing their hands right away, you know, changing their clothes if something gets on them. And like, like Leanne mentioned just a little while ago, um, they don't like certain fabrics, tight clothing or tags on clothings. You know, this could either mean like compression shirts are too tight for them or, you know, they find wool or cotton scratchy, things like that. And also the oversensitivity can definitely manifest for big motions. Kids won't like the big motion um, from swings, seesaws, slides, roller coasters. Um, the motion is just too big for, for them to process. Earlier when you were describing reactions to clothing, you mentioned like they wouldn't like things that are too tight or too loose. Would that be because if something was flowy and it was like a an unexpected shift against their skin if something were to like brush against it and then not and then brush against them and not like would that be very distracting to them yeah that definitely can be um i think i think more so that the tight clothing is what you're usually seeing with the over responsive so i think i misspoke a little bit there the loose could be could be an issue for kids with uh the poor discrimination it might cause difficulty with body awareness you know, if it's, if it's a little bit too big and they can't really, you know, feel or move their limbs right, that could, that could definitely be more of an issue for those kiddos. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks. That clarified that. Yeah. No, thanks. That is a good point. <laughs> and so next we have our under-responsive kids. Um, so like I was mentioning before, and, and like the kid in the picture shows, um, just kind of low energy, not really as active as some of the other kids are. Um, but if you look a little bit more closely, there, there are some other kind of areas that might indicate a child is under-responsive. They have trouble telling the difference between smells or flavored foods, so either bad or good odor, spicy or plain food. They don't really give much of a reaction either way. So a, a lot of times they're also not aware of objects that are near them. So they might bump into signs or walls. So as a result, these kids might have a lot of bruises that they kind of can't explain because they're not really as aware of their body. They're not getting that, that input that lets them know where their body is at any given point. 
a lot of times they'll also fail to hear noises or people calling their name. And unfortunately, that kind of gives these kids a bad rap. Parents might think, you know, they just don't want to listen. But sometimes it's just that that auditory system isn't as active as it should be. So the other kids really can't stand mess. The kids that are over responsive, these children um, are usually really unaware of, of mess. You know, their hair might be messed up. Their hands might have dirt on them. They're unaware, unbothered by it. A lot of times these kids don't know how to regulate the response or the sensory input that they are getting. So sometimes they'll exert too much force and not even know it. Um, so this might lead them to break crayons or pencils when writing just because they don't know what kind of force those utensils need. Um, and kind of similar to the other body awareness related issues, kids like these will rarely cry when they get a cut um, or get hurt in any way. Um, a lot of times, like I mentioned, their body is just under responsive uh, to that type of input. So it's, it's not as sensitive to the pain in most cases. Brittany, if you've ever worked with an unresponsive child before, and for example, like I really honed in on the characteristic that they fail to register certain noises or people calling their name, I feel like that would be a pretty significant like complaint a parent would have when they bring their child in for evaluation. So if that's something they mention, like, you know, Johnny doesn't turn around when I call his name, like what might be something that you would recommend to that parent taking in light that that little Johnny is under responsive? Yeah, that's definitely a, a tricky one sometimes. Um, a lot of people might think that it's, you know, like I mentioned, purely an attentional issue. Um, you know, they might think it's a result of ADHD or just poor focus or something like that. But it's definitely important to incorporate kind of attentional, I guess, interventions in a way, but it's also important to really wake that auditory system up. Um, and so kind of combining uh, interventions that kind of address both of those will really help kids not only better respond to the things in their environment, but also kind of, you know, parse out what needs to be responded to and what doesn't need to be responded to. So being able to realize that, okay, certain noises might might mean danger. I have to pay attention to that. Or somebody calling my name, that means, you know, they need something important rather than, you know, getting over responsive to, like I was mentioning before, the vacuum cleaner or the fire alarm or something like that. So you, you mentioned waking up the auditory system. What might be something that you would do to do that? Like, I'm super curious now. <laughs> like, let's wake up this auditory system. How do we go about that? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of ways we can incorporate music and just sound in general into treatment. And it's also really important to note that the auditory system is has a quite a big intersection with our, our balance and our equilibrium systems um, just because of the workings of the inner ear. Um, I'm sure you guys are all aware of that. That's definitely within SLP's you know, scope of knowledge. So it, I think you guys are especially well poised to be able to address some of those issues kind of in tandem. Um, some of it can be incorporating music in, um, some of it might be incorporating some balance or um, some gross motor activities, uh, which we'll definitely get into in, in a few slides when we talk more about the under-responsive kids. Mm. All right, awesome. Cool. All right, Brittany, thank you. Yeah, definitely. So our next kiddos are the sensory-seeking ones. Um, so these kids, like I mentioned before, are seeking out, you know, sensory input from wherever they can get it. Anything they can get their hands on, they, they want to. Um, so they prefer really flavorful foods. So something that's salty, spicy, sour, 
um, or bitter. So that's something that really kind of wakes up the, the senses. Um, so they like to smell and touch everything from food to people to toys. Um, sometimes that might be a problem. Sometimes it might be seen as, you know, crossing some boundaries, might be some issues with disinhibition there, which is kind of important to address, um, address the kind of the social norms related to appropriately seeking sensory input. These kids will also enjoy bright colors, spinning objects, flashing lights, and moving water. So anything that is, is really visually attracting as well. They like being around a lot of noise, so some kids might be bothered by really noisy, noisy places and crowds, but these kids will really love anywhere like the cafeteria, gym, um, shopping mall, or anywhere that they can listen to loud music. These kids are also always in motion, like I was mentioning before. Uh, they can swing or spin for a while, and they really have a pretty high tolerance for what might make some other kids dizzy. Um, they're also always fidgeting, rocking, tapping, playing with their hair, clapping their hands, you know, just constantly moving. Yeah, also climbing, jumping, and, and pushing onto other things. Um, really anything that they can do to move and you know look and taste, all of it, it's uh, something that these kids really, really seek at all points in time. Brittany, real quick, for yeah. a sensory seeker, would doing something like heavy work be helpful? Um, I remember tag teaming with an OT, like I mentioned, back in those early days. And going from the waiting room back to the treatment room, we would have this little one push a cart that had as much weights as we could put in it. <laughs> so <laughs> that he had to just, you know, give it his full force and push it all the way down the the hall. Would that be something helpful or am I misremembering and maybe uh, that would have been a good tool for like a, a different style of sensory input child? No, that's your spot on. That's definitely really good for sensory seeking. Um, it's also sometimes a really, because heavy work is really regulating to the body, it also serves to, you know, calm and soothe. Um, so it's really good for sensory seeking, but it's also really good for those under-responsive kiddos. You know, it, it gives them input as to where their body is and, and what they need to do with it. So, you know, it kind of alerts them in, in a good way. So it kind of brings them up from that under-responsive to hovering right around, you know, balanced and regulated, which is exactly what these under-responsive kiddos need to, to kind of engage. Um, so they need to be brought up and then the sensory seekers need to be brought down and heavy work definitely plays a big role in that. Mm -hmm. Cool. I, I like that heavy work can be used kind of for both ends of the spectrum to help bring them to their middle ground. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Heavy work is, is really powerful. I've, I've seen it do some wonderful things. You know, you think, man, this kid will never calm down. And then you give him a whole bunch of weights, like you were mentioning, and it's, it's pretty magical. <laughs> So our next one is poor discrimination. So these kids a lot of times have difficulty responding to and following instructions. So again, this might be a common complaint of parents. You know, he just doesn't listen to anything I say. You know, it could be a poor discrimination issue where he just doesn't know how to. So for this reason, uh, kids like these really don't like puzzles, video games, coloring pages, word searches, um, because a lot of times those require either complex instructions or you know, there's a whole lot going on at once that's just, it's too hard for them to tell one component from the next. So any kind of similar activities to those, uh, they'll also shy away from. They also have trouble separating uh, visual demonstrations or instructions from verbal demonstrations and instructions. 
a lot of times as therapists, we think that, you know, we need to give them all the, all that cueing that they need, the visual, the verbal, the tactile, the kinesthetic, everything so that they can know how to do something. Um, but sometimes these kids with poor discrimination uh, can have trouble with uh, getting too much cueing. So we need to really break it down and make it as simple as possible for these kiddos. That's a really interesting thought. When I'm when I'm working with adults and we're do, we're going through that cueing hierarchy, I'm trying to pinpoint like what's the best type of cue to get the response I'm after. You know, is it a verbal cue, a visual cue, a model, a gesture, um, something written? So, as I'm kind of cycling through those, in the back of my mind, I am also looking like, ooh, is this overwhelming the patient? But I hadn't thought that like like maybe this person. So like when you say like they have trouble separating a visual demo or or instruction from a verbal, like, so if they get both, like what, can you explain and kind of unpack that a little bit more about how, how they have difficulty with that? And it's because I feel like it goes beyond just like, what style of learner are you? Or maybe it's that simple. Like, can you? Absolutely. Um, It's an important thing to to really talk about more. A lot of times we think we're doing the right thing by giving the kids, you know, as much uh, structure and education as, as we think they need. But sometimes it's hard for kids to really focus on what's going on visually as well as what's going on, what, what they're hearing. Um, so it, it can be more overwhelming, even though you're giving more structure and you think it's, it's doing something good. So for these kiddos, we would stick with one thing or the other, uh, whichever one we see as being more effective for them. Um, so maybe, you know, a visual schedule or uh, that visual demonstration or, you know, just a couple couple pictures of maybe on an instruction pamphlet of a game that you're about to play. So maybe sticking with that or sticking with really short, simple, clear uh, verbal instructions um, and only telling them one step at a time as it's applicable to them. So I think that's a really salient point uh, that everybody should really remember is that you know, more is not always, not always better. Mm-hmm. And so due to a lot of these issues that we just talked about, um, kids with poor discrimination are usually the last ones done with assignments or tests. That's usually due in part to the difficulty following instructions. Um, and they might also just have trouble with attention due to this. So the next type of kiddo is uh, those with dyspraxia. So kids like these uh, really have difficulty with anything motor related. Um, So they might have difficulty with basic exercises um, or even some of those developmental milestones like jumping, hopping, or skipping. A lot of times this also translates to difficulty writing. They don't really know how to use the utensils correctly, you know, poor grasp pattern, don't know how to orient the utensil in the right way. They can also struggle to manage scissors and glue um, and, you know, anything else they really need to do school assignments or projects that are typical for that age. And this usually causes kids to get pretty frustrated um, because a lot of times they're in a classroom with peers who are doing these things pretty readily. Um, So it can be really frustrating when they can't do some of these seemingly simple things um, just because they're a little bit more complex for these kiddos, unfortunately. And so a lot of times they'll get frustrated, but they will avoid these tasks as well. They might slump over their desk too, just because of that poor posture, their body's not really moving in the right way. So uh, their core strength is a little bit lower than, than some other kids. And 
Um, that poor posture usually leads them to slump over their desk, which of course also has an impact on their, their task performance. And a lot of this isn't really just classroom. Uh, it also translates to the gym so that they might have poor balance during gym class or when standing in line or really doing any kind of large scale movement. So what's the connection, like what's the sensory component here for children with dyspraxia? Because, you know, when you're talking about dyspraxia, it's pretty clear it's like a, it's a motor planning issue and follow through. So where, where does the sensory component come into, into play with our dyspraxia? Yeah, so a lot of times those kids with poor body awareness, sometimes that can impact dyspraxia. It, you know, it definitely impacts motor planning. So having that poor body awareness means a lot of times they don't know how to orient their own body. So that means that, you know, you're not able to do those things like jumping, hopping, skipping, um, or even holding scissors or writing utensils properly. You know, if, if your body's not able to move in the right way, they're also not able to interact with objects around them in the right way. So that those, those sensory issues kind of directly translate to motor planning issues in, in a lot of instances with kids who have dyspraxia. Thank you. Yeah, that really cleared that up for me. Yeah, it's it can be difficult parsing everything out because a lot of these areas do have overlap. Like like we were mentioning heavy work, heavy work can be applicable to the under-responsive kids as well as the sensory seekers. It's kind of helpful to have more of a trained eye so that you can understand what to look for and and really how to report it um, if you're either documenting or referring them to uh, another professional. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to get into a little bit of the strategies. So the strategies for the over-responsive kids, a lot of times they're general strategies that really can help with any population, but sometimes they're a little bit more specific. Um, and again, this is going to be based on child preference and, you know, some, some things are really just trial and error. Some kids might not like some of these strategies. Some kids really might take to them. So it's, it's kind of all about each kid and their individual preferences. So it's helpful for over-responsive kids to dim lights slightly or use lamps to kind of regulate the amount of light in the room. Um, it might be difficult for, um, especially in a lot of sensory, sensory gyms, bright fluorescent lights above um, that can be, you know, a lot of input. So if you're really focused on seated tasks, it's also important to, you can use those lamps to direct the light right where you're working so that they don't have any trouble working on what's in front of them so that they don't have to deal with all the lights all at once. Using diluted calming essential oils, such as chamomile or lavender. This is especially one of the things that I kind of alluded to when I mentioned child preference, because certain kids can react pretty strongly to certain smells, you know, even especially due to allergies and things like that. So it's important to kind of test these out very little, little at a time. So allow the child to smell a small amount or add just a little bit to a diffuser, you know, make it highly diluted um, just so they can smell it before actually, you know, going, going in and implementing it every day or something like that. A lot of these scents can usually be calming and kind of help regulate. It can also be something that essential oils can also be something that help alert kids. So we can definitely use those uh, for some of the strategies for the other kiddos as well. Another strategy that's good for over-responsive kids are the slow rhythmic rocking or swinging. Um, So you can either do this in a regular chair or on a swing or even on the floor. Uh, You can get creative and and really just kind of use your body sometimes if there's no equipment around. Um, So the slow rhythmic rhythmic rocking 
is definitely a self-soothing sort of strategy. So some kids might innately do this to calm themselves down. Some kids might need a little bit of guidance in, in using this strategy. It's something that can definitely help. Another one is a small mint or a hard candy to suck on. Something that's like peppermint or something, a neutral taste, nothing too, nothing too pungent or too flavorful can definitely help calm them down, stimulate those oral motor structures and, and really just allow them to kind of sit down and tolerate maybe a seated activity or something like that um, if, if they do need to kind of reel it in. And then you can always take some of those gross motor, kind of big, heavy work, deep pressure sort of activities and turn them into like an animal themed activity where you might be giving each other bear hugs and then need to roar like a bear. So anything like we were mentioning the heavy work before that deep pressure over a large surface area is definitely very calming. So in the form of a bear hug or um, a weighted blanket or something like that can definitely help calm them down and also keep them engaged. Uh, you know, kids love relating to animals, noises and acting like an animal and anything like that. Oh, this is bringing up all kinds of memories from my collaboration with my occupational therapist and doing some of these sensory strategies when we were co-treating um, with a small child. And um, we would do taco rolls. So we would get a mat and lay it <laughs> on the floor and then have our little child lay on it and then gently roll him up in the little taco and then apply gentle pressure up and down. I love it. Very nice. Yeah. I thought that was fun. I was like, can I go next? <laughs> that was really cool. Yeah. And then another one was we had a small sofa in that room. And so then taking the cushions and kind of doing a sandwich version of that with like applying gentle pressure from above. And so kind of getting gently squashed in between there um, to get that. What did you call it? It's not the heavy work. It's that deep. Uh, yeah. The deep pressure. The deep pressure. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting upon all the strategies that you laid out. And I see that you're kind of covering all those senses like vision, taste, smell, motor movements, some proprioception, like the, the rocking versus that deep pressure. So I think that's like good. That's like a starting place. It's like, which, which sensation or sensory input, like, can we target in this way? Yeah, definitely. And um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's not going to be the end all be all like, okay, these kids are, these kids are good now, you know, they can definitely, you know, take on the world, but it can definitely improve focus for a little bit. You know, some of these kids with some more involved issues will probably need an OT referral or something like that, but definitely incorporating parts of, of these strategies into treatment can definitely help, help them engage in, in speech treatment, you know, which is definitely definitely important. OTs can't really help with, you know, what's going on during your treatment other than provide some of these strategies. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I learned a lot from those co-treats. It was like the best. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Co-treats are such a wealth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. And we have a couple more for over-responsive. I actually forgot that this was, there was more for this. <laughs> so depending on, on their age. Um, yeah. Like we just mentioned, wrap them up tight in a blanket or give them um, a weighted lap pad or even a shoulder pad for use during therapy. Mm -hmm. um, that's something real easy. You can just pop on their lap or across their shoulders um, and help them engage in more in some seated activities. If it's time to sit down when working with any manipulatives, it's important to kind of space the items out to encourage the child to slow down and move around more. Um, so for some of these over-responsive kids, they, they might tend to rush through things or, you know, 
hurry up and okay, I'm going to scoop them all up at once. Nope, we want to slow down and we want to make things more purposeful and we want to encourage them to be more mindful about what they're doing. Um, so by kind of spacing those things out, you know, and, and giving them more movement, we're also hoping that that'll simultaneously calm them and slow them down. And having kids perform certain verbal prompts as a song, dance, or a mini play, um, anything they can do to really act things out and, and kind of get some of that energy out, you know, performing arts are a wonderful way to do that. <laughs> Same thing with obstacle courses. Um, a small obstacle course can, can really easily be incorporated with uh, like a letter matching game or even a word finding game. So of course, you guys won't necessarily be doing full-on obstacle courses like PTs or OTs might be doing, but uh, building a small one is definitely a good way for kids to kind of get get out of that chair and and engaging more with you know word finding, um, more more SLP concepts. And another good way is playing calming music in the background. So once the kids kind of get that energy out and it's time for them to sit down um, and really attend to some seated activities, then that calming music will kind of help them maintain that more regulated stance. Um, and we talked a little bit about the, the mint or sucking on a hard candy. Um, some more calming oral motor input might be harmonicas, pinwheels, kazoos, or whistles. Um, so anything that's kind of strengthening those oral motor muscles and, and really encouraging uh, the, that self-soothing behavior again. All right, so next we have our under-responsive strategies. So our first one is, is also one that should be mentioned with an asterisk. So using a sit, sit or spin or another activity with circular spinning is a classic way to get under-responsive kiddos um, a bit more energized and a bit more ready for treatment. Uh, but this is one that should be used with caution. Um, circular spinning is, is meant to improve alertness and energy. But too much uh, can definitely, too much can definitely be a bad thing. Some kids are, or most kids are super sensitive to this. Um, so it's important to really regulate the amount of this input that kids are getting because it can really have the opposite effect and unfortunately make kids sick or even more over-responsive than they needed to be. Um, so it can have the opposite intended effect. Another good way to stimulate those under-responsive kiddos is riding on a scooter board. So they can do this either sitting down, crisscross applesauce, or on their stomach. They can jump on a trampoline or sitting on a large exercise ball instead of a chair. Uh, that's another good one that really helps stabilize those core muscles. So by engaging those core muscles, uh, that's improving alertness. And it's they have to their body has to do a lot more work to sit upright rather than if they were just in a chair. So a large exercise ball is a, is a really good one. Another thing is eating crunchy snacks like carrots, pretzels, or granola. Any activities with rolling are also good. So might, might have them do a little bit of tumbling or possibly like acting things out like performing or doing animal walks that might include rolling, like we mentioned before. Another good way to bring the energy level up is allowing them to run their hands through rice, sand, or beads. These kind of materials can really easily be made into object finds. You know, you can hide things in there, either preferred preferred items or letters or verbal prompts, anything like that can really be hidden in these those materials. I hate to interrupt you again, Brittany, but pro no, tip, that's okay. like lay down a sheet so that cleanup is easy because it never stays in the bin, does it? <laughs> I know. I always feel so bad recommending that to parents, like especially with teletherapy, like the kids love it. It's wonderful, but I feel so bad for the parents who have the mess afterwards. <laughs> it's like, maybe do it outside. <laughs> like... I know. <laughs> 
the exercise is another good way to really improve alertness. Might be a chair or wall push-ups, maybe blowing bubbles with a straw or the animal walks make another presence here. Um, bunny hops, frog leaps, cat walks, um, jumping jacks or even wheelbarrow walks. They don't have to be a huge part of the session um, because it might be hard to somehow you know, necessarily connect this with SLP treatment. Um, but, you know, doing five wall push-ups, push-ups real quick, just as a starting activity to kind of wake things up, uh, that's definitely indicated and, you know, pretty appropriate for most kiddos. Um, so next we have our sensory seeking strategies. Uh, this can get a little bit more complex sometimes, especially as we mentioned, there's some overlap between this, the under-responsive at times. Um, so we want to use a cushion on their seat. We can use either a textured cushion or a flat cushion or even just one with air. That kind of gives them that sensory input when they have to be sitting down. Um, a lot of times that's used in class or really anywhere where they have to stay sitting down for a, a period of time. So if they're also encouraged to follow specific movement patterns, that'll help get that energy out and kind of improve their attention. So they might be jumping to the beat of a song or hopping around on certain color tiles. So it's kind of engaging all their systems at once, which is, is meant to kind of expend some of that energy that they have. Um, and same with movement, uh, similarly goes uh, the songs. So songs that require direction following and sequence movement, the hokey pokey or... London Bridges or something like that. Anything that really, any of those kids songs are really good. Um, and, you know, even standard songs can kind of be tailored to, to really fit the bill. Um, and encouraging messy play, like finding words in paper mache or clay. That's also a good way to, to really encourage this, this sensory input really from any, any tactile input, like anything they have around them. If they're encouraged to play in it, that really increases their chances of kind of getting that energy out and and needing to and not needing to seek that out um, elsewhere. A ball pit's really good. That definitely helps them. They can either crash in there or throw things in the ball pit um, and go retrieve them or try and make something in a hoop. Um, there's tons of activities with the ball pit. If you're working with a group of kids, kind of easy to facilitate a type of team sport or a team activity um, so that everybody can kind of work together and everybody also has to be mindful of um, everybody else's movements. So that's a lot of, lot more sensory input coming in. So the kids kind of have to slow down a little bit and pay attention to everybody's, everybody's input and, and modulate it and organize it. And again, exercise of course makes a, makes a presence here. Um, chair or wall push-ups, blowing bubbles with a straw, animal walks or jumping jacks are also a good way um, for those sensory seekers to get that energy out. For our poor discrimination kiddos, again, we're going to really slow down and focus on the instructions that we're giving, like we mentioned before. Um, so when instructing them to do something, focus on showing them rather than telling them, because like we said, it's uh, that can be a lot of information. Um, if you do need to verbally give instructions, you can speak slowly and in short phrases and be very clear and only give them the instructions they need right there in the moment. One-step directions are usually the best with these kiddos, rather than telling them the entire activity all at once and then having them uh, parse it out for themselves. Um, so similarly, these kids are going to need extra time for, for the activities, and you can relieve some of that pressure that they're already putting them on themselves by making that environment as distraction-free as possible. So minimize the noises, take away the toys that might be distracting, um, give them just enough light that they need to 
to see their environment, but also focus. So if you're working on something like a puzzle, work on work on ones with very few pieces to kind of try and minimize those feelings of overwhelm. I know I even get really overwhelmed when I'm in the presence of a really big jigsaw puzzle. It's just, you don't really know where to go first or what to do. So focusing on the simplicity of that is, is a lot easier for these kids. And giving tactile cues when needed can work. Like we mentioned, we don't want to give all types of input in terms of cueing and demonstrations, but when needed, tactile cues can definitely be helpful for this population. So that might mean tapping a part of their body that they should be using or asking them to wiggle a certain limb to ensure that you guys are on the same page and, and they know what they should be doing. That just kind of helps reinforce that connection between the child and the therapist so that they're on the right page. Yeah, I am all about like confirming that my message is understood. So I love that you have that in there about like asking for that confirmation that they're showing you that they they heard, they understand, they're ready for that action. That's really good. Definitely, because the last thing you want is, you know, to get to the end of a session or even later than that and realize, wait a minute, this poor child thought, you know, they they missed there was a miscommunication. They thought they thought it was this the entire time. Um, so that just kind of sets them up for failure, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then we have some settings for or strategies for dyspraxia. These kids are also going to need extra time for activities um, because that difficulty with coordination can really cause them to struggle. So again, relieve that pressure by making their environment distraction-free to the best of your ability. Since these kids often have trouble gripping utensils and, and objects around them, larger utensils and pencil grips and things like that can definitely help them. It's also important to make sure they have line paper or even graph paper around. It's going to be really hard for these kids to write on, you know, a blank piece of printer paper um, with absolutely no guidance or no structure. So that line paper can help, you know, kids who are just learning to write all the way up to elementary and middle school kids, allowing them to learn early on that spacing, that placement, um, keeping everything aligned properly. Um, Since these kids usually do have a lot of issues with writing, allow them to use a computer, tablet, or or really any other medium to write rather than just a pen and a paper, because a lot of kids, unfortunately, can get really frustrated with those types of activities and um, computers, tablets, uh, anything like that are just easier for them. Since they do get frustrated, uh, allow breaks to really decrease some of this frustration. Uh, You don't want a kid just powering through a 10 or 15 minute task uh, and just continually getting frustrated, you're not really getting anywhere with that. So any kind of breaks you can get or you can give them to kind of unwind and, you know, recollect their thoughts, uh, that would definitely be helpful. And kind of similarly to the poor discrimination strategies, we want to break information into smaller, more manageable pieces So we can use smaller checklists, picture steps, and really other ways to kind of chunk that information so it's easier for them to comprehend and and do individually. And also, these kids really thrive off of practice. So if you give them something and expect them to immediately know what to do with it, uh, they're they're not going to do great with that. So if you're about to pull out a new game or a, a fidget or any kind of manipulative, let them practice or play with them in a safe space before sitting down to actually work with them. So let them get more comfortable with it. You know, the shape, uh, the size, the texture. Once they have a little bit of opportunity for some exploration with that, that's really going to help uh, their performance later on down the line. Um, and so as promised, we've been talking a lot about kids, but uh, we do have some strategies in here for uh, adults and older adults, namely after strokes, because that's a big population that really struggles with some 
uh, probably lesser known sensory issues. A lot of people might neglect the sensory issues um, in the stroke population. So some of these may or may not, you know, be readily incorporated into, into your treatment. Um, I think that's for you guys to decide whether, whether or when it's appropriate to incorporate some of these things. But these are definitely ways that you can kind of encourage some participation. So texture games, putting any kind of textures together, might be some cashmere, might be a washcloth, might be some cotton balls, um, anything with a variety of textures. And then have these individuals close their eyes and then feel each texture and describe them. So it's, it's eliciting you know, their brain processing this input, but it's also eliciting, you know, their conversation skills. Like, do they, do they have the, you know, wherewithal to be describing these uh, textures? Are they able to guess what the objects are? Are they able to describe whether they feel, you know, dangerous or okay? I think that's a really good way to, to really just encourage participation in general, um, you know, basic texture game. I think that's a great idea, Brittany. Like, I love that. Like, we can do so much word finding and, and like linguistic generation with that. Oh, it's so fun. Like that's, and we're, yeah. And we're involving the senses because most of what we do is either like maybe show them a picture or an object, but it's not really so much on like, oh, feel this and describe it to me. Like, that's not really language right. that we typically get into in therapy, but like, why not? It's just as valid as the other areas. So that's cool. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, and I think it's like what you're saying even more so, it, especially the the word finding aspect of it. I mean, that can be really frustrating if, if somebody struggles with that in public. So kind of getting more used to that word finding in a variety of, in response to a variety of input, um, mm -hmm. you know, in a safe space can really be just the practice they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, girl, I'm excited to go try this now. Like. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's fun, even as a therapist, kind of gathering all the things for an activity like this. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so similarly, uh, feeling s similar objects with eyes open, and then again with eyes closed. So connecting that visual image you have of the item with the kinesthetic aspects of it. So how it feels, how it smells, everything else. And then again, focusing on those descriptors. So thinking of these similar objects uh, in a different lens. Mm -hmm. And then you can even incorporate body awareness with this touch discrimination. So get them to verbalize, you know, get them to close their eyes and then have them tell you what part, what body part you are touching or what limb they have raised in the air. Um, so that's a good way to, to kind of address two in one. Mm -hmm. Love it. And then we have one more for older adults with dementia. So similarly, calming music and songs, uh, even TV shows from their past, it's kind of all under the umbrella of, I think it's life reminiscence therapy. I think that's what it's called. So, you know, it's meant to help with the, the cognitive aspects of things, but uh, definitely can help calm some difficult behaviors and really kind of tap into that sense of nostalgia to self-soothe and, you know, use those positive memories. Mm -hmm. um, same thing, fabrics make a make a an appearance here, petting soft fabrics or stuffed animals, or even a lot of older adults can benefit from motorized dogs or cats that purr when you touch them. You know, the, the presence of a pet, even even if artificial can be really calming, especially mm -hmm. for, you know, older adults who might already have an attachment to animals. Um, and then making a scrapbook with memorable pictures. And then you could also throw pages in there with uh, plush fabrics that encourage them to kind of manipulate the pages. And it could all, almost serve as a fidget for some of those who are re more restless. 
And then calming imagery is also really important with this population. Um, a lot of times they don't really, especially in the later courses of the disease, um, they might not have the ability to actually seek out a lot of these uh, self-soothing strategies. So really just having something on in the background, like a calming scenery for them to look at, uh, maybe moving aquarium or lava lamps or uh, pictures of running waterfalls or the beach. Um, you might even be able to do, you know, kind of a slide, a digital slideshow for uh, people that really don't want to sit down with an album or a scrapbook. Very nice. Yeah, so the, the main takeaway is that, you know, many of these strategies can help improve focus in the moment, but for kids that are really struggling with some of these behaviors, uh, they'd really be best suited by a referral to an OT, um, you know, or even in some cases, a behavior therapist, um, you know, the appropriate professional. At that point, uh, you can work with that professional to really find more student-centered sensory strategies, because a lot of these are, are kind of one-size-fits-all. Some of them, you know, can be catered to the certain senses that the child has an issue with, but you know, OTs and other professionals would probably be able to provide more, you know, targeted strategies and almost like a home exercise program, so to speak, for SLPs and other professionals to follow uh, during their sessions. So just as, as we've been talking about co-treats throughout this, it's kind of important that everybody's swapping information as needed so that we're really improving success and enhancing carryover uh, overall. That's wonderful. Brittany, thank you so much. This was so helpful. And I just really enjoyed the memory or the walk down my own memory lane, um, kind of reliving those co-treatments that I got to have with um, my occupational therapist. Wow. I really, I didn't realize how much I learned from her through <laughs> this. So thank you so much, Brittany. Just a quick question. Do we have any sure. questions from our participants tonight? Y'all are welcome to ask any questions in the Q&A feature and Brittany and I will be happy to answer them. Brittany, do you have any like last thoughts? I think it's, you guys are all doing wonderful work as SLPs. And um, I think a lot of it is, is kind of trusting the education that you already have. I mean, you guys have a really valuable skill set, and some of this stuff isn't necessarily something to, you know, get like super stressed out about or, or worry, Hey, maybe I'm not meeting their sensory needs or anything like that. But, you know, if you, if you really implement just a couple of these strategies in, in healthy doses, I think it, it could definitely play a big part and, um, improving, improving the child's progress while also kind of giving them what they need until they can get an OT referral or, or referral to another professional if needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Well put, well put. Also, thank you for the compliment. Really kind. You're the best, Brittany. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's our time for tonight. Um, I haven't seen any questions pop up. Uh, just a reminder for our participants before we head out. Let me see. Please complete the verification of attendance and the survey at the end of this presentation. We'd love for you to get credit for joining us tonight. And for any future courses, check out speechtherapypd.com slash live, L-I-V-E. Thanks for joining us tonight. Happy 2021, everyone. Yay, this was fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Brittany. Yeah, thank you. It was wonderful. All right. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. 
Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 